Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1. One summer, there was a man who visited Washington, D.C. with his family. And when he got there, the first thing they did one morning was uh, they went to the Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian. And they spent a few hours puttering around the museum. And, and while they're there, you, you, they went around and they looked at all these displays of uh, different jets and jet engines and airplanes. And uh, there was explanations there of how jet propulsion happens and kind of boiling, ta- boiling down what was true and scientific for somebody uh, maybe who doesn't have as much of a scientific mind. And, and you could understand it. And it's just laying out all of this uh, exact truth. And here's how it works and here's how it is. And you've been to museums like that, right? Well, uh, the next day they went across the mall in D.C. And this time, instead of the Air and Space Museum, uh, they went to the National Gallery of Art. Now, the National Gallery of Art was so much different than the Air and Space Museum. There were no models. There were no rational scientific explanations on display. There were just paintings. And there was life conveyed, conveyed through brush strokes and on pieces of canvas. And the father was there and he kind of went off with his son and spent the next several hours roaming from room to room, looking at all the paintings. They were captivated, captivated by them and, and the messages that they portrayed. 
They saw emotions of human life in the paintings. They saw fear and love and hate, despair, triumph, beauty, disgust. In the painting entitled The Repentant Magdalene, uh, it, it's a painting that uh, depicts, the, depicts Mary Magdalene and uh, gazing meditatively into a dimly lit mirror, maybe reflecting on her past. And there's a skull that sits before her on the table on top of a book. Maybe the book is the Bible. Maybe the skulls were passed and just some things that had happened that were dark. And the mirror is angled so that the viewer of the painting sees the skull in the book reflected in the mirror rather than Mary when she's looking into it. You got the picture? And they were just captivated by this one and kept thinking, what does that mean? Like, what's, what's going on? Is she still just haunted by her past even though she's been forgiven? And what is all of this? Well, the book that we study week after week, the Bible, collection of books and letters, has a whole different variety of literature all throughout it. And it's much like these different museums. And in some parts of the Bible, especially the letters in the New Testament and the Gospels, there's, uh, it's, it's a lot like the Smithsonian. There's, the, there's just this propositional truth that's laid out. Here's how it is. And Paul lays all of it out. And here's the doctrine you ought to believe. And don't do this. Do do this. And here's who Jesus is. And he lays it all out really clear. But a third of the Bible, at least, is not like that. And you go back into the Old Testament and you look at some of the poetry in the Old Testament and you find out it's a whole lot more like the National Museum of Art, the National Gallery. And instead of laying out propositional truth with an exact science, it conveys it through emotion and it conveys it through imagery, much like a painting. And the Lord is like this and my soul pants uh, like the deer pants for water. And, and there's all of this imagery there and it conveys emotion. Like I said, did you know over one third of the Bible is like that? It's not just this cut and dry propositional truth, but it's emotional poetry. The books of Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Lamentations are almost entirely poetic. Much of the prophecies are poetic. There's there's much in narrative that's poetic. And especially the one that you probably think of and the place we're going this summer, the Psalms are poetic. They're Hebrew poetry. They're poetry. And now you're like, yeah, it doesn't rhyme. It's not a poem. They don't rhyme, Josh. I don't think so. No, if you could see it like in, it's in the original Hebrew, it's beautiful. Because what they do is instead of saying a phrase using like five words, they condense it down to one or two. And they just say it very beautifully and succinctly and poetically. We'll try to convey some of that for you, but you ever wonder why do people write poetry? That's something that hasn't changed of why we write poetry and why people love poetry. Do you know why? It's because it expresses emotion. Now, some of you guys are saying, I don't write poetry. I don't write poetry. Not getting any emotion out of me. Well, maybe you ought to spend some time this summer reading some poetry and letting God engage your heart. Because uh, the poets we're going to be reading from are men, and they're men whose hearts were fully engaged with God. Well, poetry is powerful, though. You know, there was a missionary who arrived in Ethiopia some years ago, and they did a translation of the New Testament. And they got it all done, and they got it printed, and they started selling it, but it like barely sold. So the next thing they started working on was the Psalms. And after they bundled the Psalms in poetry with the New Testament, kind of like the little Gideon Bibles that you get sometimes, 
Those things sold like hotcakes, like everybody wanted one. Do you know why? Because of the poetry, the way it engaged their emotions. It's, it's something that just attracts us. It leads us deeper into a worship of God and an understanding of his ways. See, a lot of times in, in contemporary Christianity, we kind of, we, we go, ooh, emotion, uh-uh, nope. Don't, don't express yourself. If you're happy when you're singing and you know it, keep your hands in your pockets. <laughs> That's what you do, right? It's not clap your hands. No, it's hold them down. We're scared of emotion in our culture. You ever notice that? We really are. Yet the Bible is filled with it. Specifically, you know where we're often we're scared of emotion is when we pray. And a lot of times, let me ask you, in your small group, what are the prayer requests that come up? Well, Mary's sick, and Martha stubbed her toe, and uh, Jerry's in the hospital again, and uh, their daughter is is got a runny nose, and we, we, we do this wish list for our prayer list, don't we? And we listen. And listen, are those things okay to pray for? Pray for and good to pray for? Absolutely, you ought to. And you need to know that we pray for you when those come in and you're sick. We, we pray for you. That's commendable. That's a good thing. But that's like just a tiny piece of prayer. That's such a tiny piece. And yet, often for us, it, it, it accompanies the largest bulk of our time when we think about prayer. Well, what I want to commend to you this summer is let's look at the Psalms together. And we're going to look at a different Psalm each week. So if you, you miss one week and you come back, you're not going to be out of the loop. We're, it's a new one every week. And what I want to really encourage you to do is spend some time during the week then praying through the psalm that we studied that previous Sunday. And I'm going to talk with you a little bit this morning and explain a little bit how do you do that even as we teach through the psalms, through Psalm 1, and introduce this process. And maybe this summer you'd see your prayer life take off. Because instead of just praying, you know, like rubbing the genie in the box, praying for those sorts of things, you're praying the heart of God. You think about it, this is God's word to us. It's his communicating to us. And if we're really going to hear him, then it's good for us to say back to him what he says. And to pray what he's recorded as prayers for us in the Bible, in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms, as I said, they express a lot of emotion. Like Psalm eighty-eight, fourteen, for example. Why, O oh Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Now, if I started praying on Sunday morning, like right after worship... We just sang, and I, I start praying, Lord, why do you hide your face from me and reject me? Everybody kind of, you'd open your eyes, and you'd look up like, what's going on? Yet again, that's the emotion of the Old Testament. It's very real. That's why it attaches to our hearts and why people love the Psalms, because it's not sugar-coated in any way, shape, or form. So with that in mind, let me pray, and then we're going to be in Psalm 1, okay? Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us and to me through him. Lord, I pray this summer for our church, and I pray for me. I pray you'd help us to engage you in a meaningful and in a powerful way through your word, through your psalms, that we would uh, study them together on Sunday and then throughout the week in our small groups. But more importantly, we learn to meditate on them during the week and delight in them. And to pray through them and to pray your words back to you. Father, I'm convinced that as we do that, uh, you'll reveal yourself to us in ways um, and in, uh, in power like uh, maybe we've never, some of us have never experienced in our lifetime. So, Holy Spirit, I pray today you might start that work. And you teach us to pray with passion and uh, uh, pray with emotion and, and pray 
what's on your heart, what you've written down for us. So, Father, thanks for Jesus. I pray all this through him. I pray against the enemy and uh, his desire to discourage us and twist your word and uh, pull us away from it. But instead, let us engage. Teach us this morning, I pray. Amen. So we're in Psalm 1 this morning. By the way, if, uh, if you come to me and you, this is just my OCD coming out a little bit. It's not Psalms 1. It's Psalm singular one. Psalms is the whole book. Psalm one is number one. But I'm going to give you the fill in the blanks here right away off the top this morning, okay? And then we're going to go through the the message together. So the psalmist in Psalm one, in this first piece of poetry we're going to look at, this first psalm, which would have been set to music in that day, he identifies two ways to live. And you see this carried out then. It's a reason when they compiled the psalms, they put this one number one, because you see this piled up all through many other psalms throughout the book. But he identifies two ways to live. Here's the first. And they're a choice, by the way. You can choose, number one, uh, to delight in Jesus. You can choose, number one, to delight in Jesus. That's your choice. You get to choose that. Look, I don't know, Josh, I've had a bad week, and the last thing I want to do is think about Jesus. Well, that's exactly why you ought to. (laughs) Right? It's, It's your choice. It's your choice. And, and this group of people, this way to live, it's referred to uh, all throughout uh, the Psalms as the righteous. When you hear of the righteous, you're thinking of people who choose to delight in Jesus, to delight in God's word, to delight in who God is. That's number one. Here's the second thing. The second choice you have, if you're not going to delight in Jesus, then you're probably going to delight in your sin. Or we could have made that fill in, you know, just anything else. But I kind of narrowed it down by saying your sin. Because this group of people then is often referred to all throughout the Psalms, not as the righteous, but as the wicked. The wicked. And by the way, Jesus Jesus pulls out uh, these two descriptions as well in his teaching, right? He talks about two different types of people. And there's there's only two camps. There's those who are following him and those who are not following him. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. There's the saints and there's the sinners. And you and I, we're in one of those two camps. I hope you're in the first. That you love Jesus and you delight in him. So with that. Psalm 1, and I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to work through this together. But keep those two groups in mind, and maybe you can keep some notes as we go. The psalmist starts like this. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Let's go back to verse 1. What does it mean by blessed? Blessed is a term that's used regularly in the Old Testament. You see it all over the place. And it's abused, by the way, by many people today. Because, oh, you're, oh, you're, you're blessed. You want to be blessed? Come forward. You, want to, you know how blessed is used in those cases? A lot of times it's used as, you want some more money in your pocket? Be blessed. You know, come, you know, do you want some more health? Be blessed. Be blessed. Now, you might receive those things as a blessing from God. You might. But the blessing he's talking about here is really, if you could see it in Hebrew, it's like this idea of congratulations. Hey, congratulations. You're not walking in the way of the wicked. You're blessed. What a good thing. When this is translated into Greek, it's the same word Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor. And blessed is the peacemaker. It's that exact same word. It's this idea of 
of God rewarding someone, but not with necessarily material, temporal things, but, but eternal satisfaction and joy and happiness. You're blessed. You have this sense of peace in you. If you, if you what? If you walk not in the counsel of the wicked. See, the psalmist starts off by telling us what not to do. Walk not in the counsel of the wicked. Whose counsel do you walk in? In other words, what voices do you listen to? Who do you listen to this week? You're like, I don't know. I listen to my wife. I listen to my kids. I, I listen to all these people. No, no, beyond that. What other counsel did you listen to this week? What were you watching on TV this week? What were you watching on your phone, on your computer this week? Who, whose comments meant the most to you on Facebook this week or on Instagram? Who, who liked or didn't like your post? And you're like, oh man. And you're walking in the counsel of what they would say. Are, are you walking in the counsel of ungodly influences? Or are you walking in the counsel of the Lord and of his word? See, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, of those who don't love and know Jesus. Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to all the cacophony of voices telling him what he ought to do, but instead listens to what Jesus says he ought to do. That man is blessed. That woman is blessed. He goes on to describe this person. By the way, be careful that your counsel isn't just comparing yourself to everyone else. See, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. In other words, he doesn't do what sinners do. She doesn't do what sinners do. She doesn't stand in their way. He doesn't uh, stand in their way, in their way of life, is what he's saying. Examine your life. What have you been up to this week? Now, we've all sinned this week. We've all probably sinned today. But when you sin, do you repent and you, you turn away from the way of sinners or do you just continue to, to stand in it? You're just like, I'm not going anywhere, man. This is what I like. Hmm. It's going to be trouble for you. Both in this earth and in the life to come. See, the, the, walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor, he goes on, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, wicked and sinners are kind of used synonymously, just people who don't love Jesus. But you get to scoffers, and scoffers is just like the, the really bad ones. It, here's the definition of to scoff. It's to speak about something in a scornfully derisive or mocking way. It implies arrogance, a scoffer is. Do you sit in the seat of a scoffer? In other words, um, blessed is the man who's not a scoffer. Who doesn't throw out his opinion without thinking. <laughs> who doesn't criticize everything he sees. I wrote some things down like this. Scoffers are the worst. They're critics with no understanding. You ever met a critic with no understanding? They like to tell you everything that you're doing wrong. Or everything, like in your job, right? They, they come into your office and, oh, you're not doing this right. You're not doing this. Here's how I would do it. <laughs> That's what you're doing? <laughs> Scoffing at you. Really? That's a scoffer. They're critics with no understanding of the whole picture. The other thing I wrote down about scoffers is they're experts with no experience. To be an expert, by definition, you have to have experience. Oh, I know how to do that. That's not. Listen, I'm telling you, I, I talked to Dan once in a while. He gets a lot of experts with no experience sometimes criticizing maybe things of how he does ministry. And some of the things he's doing are outstanding um, if, we had, if we had had time this morning, we'd have brought up our Impact Kids and told you about that ministry that he started. It's awesome with our middle school students. But you probably do too. You come across experts with no experience. Those are scoffers. 
They're hypocrites with no skin in the game. No skin in the game. Are you a scoffer? Blessed is the man who's not a scoffer. Blessed is the woman who's not a scoffer. But look at verse 2. But his delight, her delight is in the law of the Lord. That's a big but in your Bible. You might want to circle it. But his delight, her delight is in the law of the Lord. What do you delight in? That word delight, that's a great word. What, what do you delight in? I wrote some things down that I delight in, that just bring me delight. I like it. Um, weather, when I can wear, like the weather outside, when I can wear a sweatshirt and shorts and be comfortable, that's delightful weather. That's fat guy weather. It's perfect. I love it. Right? Like high 60s, perfect. Light breeze, shorts and a sweatshirt. Love it. I delight in that. When I'm riding my bike, a tailwind on my bike, I delight in that. I delight in a tailwind. It's so much better than a headwind. Good music. I, I do delight in good music. And, and depending maybe even on how I'm feeling that day, different music brings delight to me. Um, a good hot dog. I delight in a good hot dog. You're like, I tell you, I just run that stuff I delight in. You can think I'm weird. I don't care. I am. Good design. I love design. Before I went into ministry, I studied architecture and did graphic design and ended up at, at Moody Bible Institute. And I delight in good design. I, I love it. Um, we study God's word, the psalmist says here. We're, we're to delight in the law of the Lord, to delight in his word. What do you delight in? Now, let me ask you, when you think about taking God's word and you pull out your Bible, you turn off your phone, you get alone with the Lord, and you open up uh, to the book of Psalms, maybe, which is right in the middle, and you start reading. Do you, do you delight in it? When you can just sit and read and think about it, and there's, there's no 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 noise, nothing else pouring into your life. You just have his word and you delight in it. I think if you're honest, if you love Jesus, if you've become a Christian, when you really think about that and you think about that opportunity, if you had that, sit on the porch, cup of coffee and your Bible, cool breeze, fat guy weather, sweatshirt shorts, and you have God's, you're going you're to delight in it. You're just like, that's, there's something about it that brings refreshment to my soul and refreshment to my bones. There's just something really good about it. That's what the psalmist says. He says, uh, blessed is the man. His delight, is in, his delight is in the law of the Lord. God designed you to delight. Did you know that? That you weren't even the first one to delight. God delighted and then he made you in his image so that you could delight. I'm using that word a lot today, right? I'm using it all up for the year, just today. It's for, for you to delight in things. How did God delight? Well, he created everything, and then what did he do? He sat back and said what? It, it's good. And then the next day he made everything, and what did he do? He stepped back and he, he delighted in what he had made. And eventually he gets to us, the crown jewel of his creation, and what's he do? He steps back and he delights in us. And he creates us in his image so that you could delight in him. And when we delight, when we find your delight and your joy in other things, ultimately it's just an echo of what you ought to delight in, which is Jesus. It is. The Westminster Confession says this is the chief end of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
That's a great definition of why you exist. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To delight in him forever. John Piper, a pastor, was a pastor in Minnesota. And he kind of, he added to this and he said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I really like that. That I can glorify God simply by enjoying him, by delighting in him. You have a choice. You can choose to delight in Jesus or you can choose to delight in your sin. And what happens is when I delight in my sin, and there's a reason we delight in sin. There's pleasure in it. If it wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't sin. We wouldn't. But Hebrews says it's a fleeting pleasure. It's like swimming in a pool where the water continues to go out. (laughs) And finally you get to the bottom and you're swimming on a concrete like a turtle stuck on a rock. That's what it's like. But when you delight in Jesus, the water stays in the pool and it's just joy. What are you delighting in? Are you delighting in a pool that's simply running out of water? Maybe it's totally out of water and you've convinced yourself there's still water here to swim in. Here I am. And people come along, dude, what are you doing in the bottom of the pool? Are you delighting in Jesus? You're made to do so. You're made to have joy. See, I've been reading Ecclesiastes lately. And in, um, I've read it probably five times in the last few months. And in chapter 8, especially, and all, really all throughout it, but in chapter 8 especially, the writer Solomon, who's, who's said to be the wisest man other than Jesus to ever live. Do you know what he says? He says this multiple times. But here's how he says it in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15. He goes, and I commend joy. He's like, I've been around the block. I've been through my life. I've had, he had like more wealth than you could uh, ever imagine. He, he had everything you ever dreamed of having. He had it. And he goes, at the end of my life, you know what? I commend joy. That's the way to go. Delight in God. See, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And he says over and over, delight in God, have joy in God, choose joy. I commend joy to you. And true joy, he says, and all the Bible says is in Jesus. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? What is it you're delighting in this week? See, he says not only his delight is in the law of the Lord, verse 2, but on his law, he does what? He meditates day and night in Psalm 1. He meditates day and night. What does it mean to meditate on God's word? Does that mean I have to sit down with my legs crossed and make noise and hum? That's weird. I'm not doing that. No, meditate just means to think about it, to think on it. One of my favorite verses in, in scripture, Paul writes this about meditating on God's word. And it's, in, uh, it's easy to remember because John 3.16 is easy. Just think now Colossians 3.16. And he writes this to the church in Colossae. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's just focus on that beginning piece of that verse and think about what does it mean to meditate on God's word? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, if you're going to meditate on God's word and you're going to take the Psalms this week and pray through them and delight in them and meditate on the law of the Lord, here's what I would think maybe you might want to do. Set aside five minutes even some morning. If you're not doing this now, five minutes is, is going to be easy for you to do. Everybody's got five minutes somewhere. Maybe you write out a passage of scripture on a, on a note card and you stick it in the dash of your car. And when you're driving to work this week, that's what you meditate on. Maybe you uh, make the lock screen on your phone a Bible verse. And so every time your phone comes on, you're being reminded of some piece of scripture this week. But, but then take time to meditate on it. 
So let's take the beginning of this verse for a second. How do I meditate on this word? Well, let's, let's just break it down and think about it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's just take that first word, let. I'm just going to stop and think, let. What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly? I guess that means it's a choice, doesn't it? If I'm going to let it, then that means I've got to, I've got to push up maybe other stuff out. I've got to slow down and let God's word dwell. How about the word dwell? What does it mean for it to dwell in me? It means maybe it's always on my lips. I repeat it to myself. Maybe if you do, you put it in your car. Every time I get in and out of my car, I just I look at that and I say that verse. I just recite it to myself. And I, I get this habit of letting God's word dwell in my life and in my heart and in my mind. That will change you. Did you know that? God's word, it's the power of God. It's living, breathing, and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. To pierce your heart to change you. Start dwelling on his word. And, and not just his word, but what about the words of Christ? Maybe I would I'd start dwelling on things that Jesus said. And then this word richly. What does it mean richly? See, we're just taking time. All we're doing right now, we're meditating on this verse. We're thinking through, what does that mean? We've taken almost two minutes now where all we're doing, we're just thinking about this verse. Maybe that's what you do this week. One verse each week, each day, five minutes. And you're just going to think, what is that? And, and work through each word, but richly. Here. You ever make tea? I grabbed some tea this morning. I got the vanilla chai decaf. So I don't get too hopped up. You ever make tea? When you make tea, I've got, I'm, I'm really thirsty. So I'm going to have some big tea and a flower vase, evidently. But I take my tea bag, right? And here's how I make tea. I just I put it in. Okay, that's good. Is that a good way to make tea? There's option one. Now here's option two of how to make tea. I can make tea and I can grab my tea bag and I can put it in the water. And I let it steep, don't I? I let it sit there for a while. I just let it dwell in the water. And pretty soon what's going to happen is after it dwells in the water for a while, it's going to dwell richly in the water. What you're going to see is the water is going to actually change color and it's going to change taste and it's going to change the way it smells and everything about it as it dwells richly is going to change. But sadly, so often what happens is many times uh, when we go to study God's word, you know what we do? We come on Sunday morning and we sit here while I preach for 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. I open up my app, I open up my phone and maybe I pay attention for five or six minutes of it. Some of you I see you. It's okay. I love you. But maybe I pay attention five or six minutes and it's just, it's like, oh, 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 good tea. Love church. Love Jesus. Dude, I'm telling you, if that's it for you, your tea is going to be just weak and nobody wants to drink it. And you're going to find yourself miserable. You're not going to find yourself delighting in God's word. If you want to delight in the law of the Lord, then you need to, to meditate in it. Let it steep in the water. Let it sit and dwell and change you. It takes time. It doesn't just happen. You've got like 100 and I think 68 hours every week. So you're talking about uh, a half hour of that where you're hearing God's words taught. If you're not in it somewhere else, that's um, of your 168 hours, 167 and a half that you're getting nothing. 
meditate on God's word. And it's really not that hard. I just showed you how to do it. You just think through it. You open it up and you just spend time thinking about it. And then what that will lead into, when you hear from God, you start to respond to him in prayer. And that's when your prayer life changes. Because now instead of praying for Betty and Sue and Larry, I'm praying, no, Lord, let let God's word dwell in me richly. Let me understand who you are and love you and be changed. Lord, this in my life is really hard, but I know your word. Lord, I don't get it, but please help me. Change me. And suddenly your prayer life is going to take off, man. I'm telling you, it will. You learn to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Now, literally, that doesn't mean like somebody's just sitting there and all they're doing is reading their word and just meditating. No, it's just like it's constant, though. It's not just a dip. It's steeping in them. It's steeping and changing them. And look now how he describes a person who's like that. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Do you want to be like that kind of tree? I told you the, the, the poets, uh, they, they, they express things in imagery. He says, if, if you let the word of God steep in you, you're going to be like a tree. And not just any tree, but one planted by streams of water. How do, let, me, let me ask you, how does a tree grow? Like, I, I don't know. How does it grow? Not fast, does it? It's pretty slow. Uh, Slow, steady growth over time. And it endures the winds. It endures hard things. It endures drought, rainy seasons. And as it grows, its roots go deep. And it gets strong. Now, a tree that's like a year old or two years old, like the ones in my backyard, you could go and you could just step on them and crush them. But when that thing's 30 years old, you go kick it, your foot is going to (laughs) hurt. Right? Because it gets strong. That's the growth that we ought to experience in our Christian life. This slow, steady growth where we grow to be strong. Like a tree with its, its roots, it's planted by streams of water. So as its roots go deep, even in times of drought, it still has refreshment. It still has nourishment. It still grows. It yields fruit. It yields fruit. That's how you know what kind of tree it is. It bears fruit. Do you bear fruit? The fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, patience, kindness, That's how you know, really, if you're a Christian. Jeremiah 17, he talks about the same thing, about its roots going deep into the water. But but Psalm 1, again, its it's leaf does not wither. What does that tell you? What happens every September, October, November around here? The leaves on the tree, what do they do? Yeah, they just wither up, right? And then you rake them up and you jump in them and then you burn them. Right? That's what you do. Well, this tree, the tree he's talking, its leaves don't wither. It's always bearing fruit. It's always growing. It's always flourishing. Don't you wish that? For, don't you wish that picture to be true of your life? Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. In all that He does, He prospers. Proverbs three five says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding." And in verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. You meditate on his word, dwell on it. But do you know what it says right after that? We forget these verses. He says, be wise, be not wise in your own eyes. Verse 7, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't be like the one who takes counsel from the wicked or sits in the seat of a scoffer. And then verse 8, it will be, when you do this, when you dwell on God's word, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It will. It'll change you. Listen. You can doubt me all you want, but I'm telling you, if you do this, I promise you, 
with the authority of Jesus himself, because he says this, and his word says this, if you do this, your life will be changed. It will. That's not an empty promise, because I didn't make it. Jesus did. God did. If you dwell on his word, your life will be changed. Look at verse 4. The wicked, though, are not so. See, now here's the other group of people. There's those who dwell on Jesus and delight in him. And there's those who delight in everything else and forget about him. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. See, now the psalmist turns his attention to describing the wicked. They're like chaff the wind drives away. This week I was uh, sitting out uh, on our porch and I had my iPad kind of late at night. And I was watching uh, Netflix. I was watching the Dust Bowl documentary. You ever seen that on PBS? You ever seen the Dust Bowl? I'm a nerd. I told you. It's Ken Burns is on PBS, and it's like, it was crazy. And you, if you want to see what it looks like for the wind to drive things away, to drive chaff away, to drive dust away, you want a real image of what the psalmist is talking about here, just go watch that. Just, just even the first five minutes of it this afternoon. I'm telling you, you'll get a big picture of what it's like, how, how uh, vain life is apart from dwelling on Jesus. They're like chaff, the wind blows, blows away. Chaff was when the, the farmer would take his grain and he'd take all the heads off the grain and, and he'd peel it off and then he'd take his, his fork and he'd throw it up in the air. And what would happen is the grain was heavier, so it would fall back down. But all the chaff, he'd do it on a windy day, all the chaff would, would blow out. And so it's how he sifted what was good from what was bad. And, and Jesus uses this comparison over and over between the righteous and the wicked. The, the righteous are like the grain. The wicked are like uh, weeds and chaff that get burned up and thrown away. Listen, apart from delighting in Jesus, you're just, it's, it's so worthless. The wicked are not so. All these descriptions of the righteous, th- these things don't apply to the wicked. They're not like a strong tree. They're like the, the leftover stuff that gets shot out of the back of the combine. Therefore, the wicked, verse 5, will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Therefore, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you ask yourself, what's it there for? He's comparing, himself, comparing what he's saying back to what he just said, right? Therefore, the, the wicked will not stand in judgment. Now, at first glance, you might read that and you go, so the wicked aren't going to get judged? It seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? Like people who just run roughshod over things and ignore God's word and ignore Jesus, they just get away with all of it. Listen, that's not the case. What he's saying is when they face judgment, they're not going to stand. They're not going to stand. They're going down and they're going to be blown away like in an instant. But those who have put their trust in Jesus, who delighted in the law of the Lord, their roots go deep. They'll stand like a strong tree because of the grace Jesus gives them. They won't, the sinners won't be in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows your ways. But the way of anyone who's wicked, who doesn't trust Jesus, will perish. Not just temporally, but eternally. As we close, just two things to point out from this psalm. Two things to ask, maybe. There's two ways of living that the psalmist points out. Which one have you chosen? Listen, you, you chose it. Yes, you did. You're like, no, I didn't. Bad things happened in my life. I didn't choose this. I'm angry with God. I didn't choose it. No, you may didn't, maybe you didn't choose what happened, but you're choosing your response. Are you choosing to delight in the law of the Lord or in the ways of the wicked? 
Which way did you choose? Are you choosing today? And the last thing I would ask you is, what are you going to do this week to delight in God's word? What's one small thing you can do? Is it going to be writing down one of these verses that stands out to you and you're just going to put it on a piece of, uh, of paper or on a sticky note or on your phone and you're just going to look at it, read it every day? That's a great start. How are you going to learn to delight in God's word? I'm telling you, it will change you. Students, as you head out, some of you are going to walk the stage today and get your diploma. It's pretty exciting. And your life is going to change in some big ways. And I'm telling you, life is not easy. You know this. It's hard. But it's incredibly more hard if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus. If you would learn this now and learn to delight in the law of the Lord and keep your eyes on him, I'm telling you, life will be better for you. When you head out, delight in Jesus, not in all the things of this world. They're empty. It's like swimming in a pool where the water is draining out quickly. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. I thank you for your word and uh, for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, thanks especially for the Psalms. And uh, as we get into them, really to see emotion played out and uh, to see people crying out in pain and in anguish and asking, where are you? Why do you turn your face from me? Why did this happen? They don't shy away from you, Lord, with, uh, with their hurts and with their sorrow. But they also don't shy away from expressing great joy in what you've done and in who you are. I pray you'd help us to do both. Uh, Father, I pray for those this morning who've never trusted you, who've never chosen the way of the righteous, who've never chosen Jesus is really what they've not chosen. I pray today that they would, that they'd turn to you in faith, that they'd be changed, that you'd make us new. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.